Well, the rule of law ensures that everyone in our society, including those who wield power, who actually can have immediate effect on your lives, can throw you in jail, can garnish your salary, can seize your house, are themselves subject to the law. They do not have untrammeled power. And there is a means to hold them accountable. That's ultimately what the rule of law is. Welcome to Of Counsel. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. Carissima Mathen grew up wanting to dance on Broadway, but today she serves as the Vice Dean Academic and full Professor of Law at the University of Ottawa Law School. Prior to her distinguished career in academics, Carissima acted as counsel and later director of litigation for the Women's Legal Education and Action Fund. Carissima's primary area of expertise is Canadian constitutional law. Her book called Courts Without Cases, The Law and Politics of Advisory Opinions will be published in 2019. She is also an active media commentator, appearing on programs such as The Current, Power and Politics, CTV National News, CBC Sunday Scrum, The Agenda, and BBC The World. Carissima has published numerous op-eds and is regularly cited in national print and online media and pioneered the practice of live tweeting from the Supreme Court of Canada. In 2018, Carissima was the recipient of the Law Society Medal, one of the highest honours bestowed by the Ontario legal profession. Before we begin our podcast today, I want to give a special thank you to our exclusive sponsor, LexisNexis Canada. As proud Canadians, we recently celebrated our great country's 150th anniversary. Our sponsor, LexisNexis, published several texts to stamp this historical landmark, including Canada's Constitutional Democracy, the 150th anniversary celebration. In this book, insightful perspectives are shared on how historical, legal, and political events shaped the development of Canada's constitution over the past 150 years. It also examines overarching constitutional, political, and historical themes that have had a profound impact on how Canada evolved and how these developments set the agenda for the coming years and decades. Forwards are written by the former Governor General of Canada, the Right Honourable David Johnston, and former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, the Right Honourable Beverly McLaughlin. You can find the book, Canada's Constitutional Democracy, the 150th Anniversary Celebration at alexisnexus.ca slash bookstore or enter for a chance to win the copy at alexisnexus.ca slash bookdraw. Enter by December 15, 2018 for a chance to win the book. Again, you can enter that contest at alexisnexus.ca slash bookdraw. Now, let's take us to our podcast on this episode of Love Council. 
Okay, so I'm here today with uh, Charisma Mathen, a very accomplished um, academic scholar, particularly in the area of constitutional law, criminal law. And uh, thank you very much for joining us today on our podcast. That's my pleasure. Um, so, uh, Charisma, I'll ask you what I ask all of our guests to start, and that is, how did it all begin with you in law? What drove you into this? Well, I don't know that my decision to enter law school was terribly considered. I had done a bachelor degree at McGill in philosophy and political theory, and in thinking about next steps, uh, law school seemed to be something that made sense for me, given my interests and given what I thought my skills were. I didn't really know what law school would be like, but... I thought it would be interesting. I actually was considering doing graduate work in philosophy, and I was accepted into a couple of programs, but ultimately I was accepted to Osgoode Hall and threw my lot in and just began, and in a sense of never looked back, I guess. I feel like our podcast should be like a promotional material for philosophy courses, because <laughs> you know, like so many people have done that type of background, and especially people who got into, for whatever reason, constitutional and criminal litigation, it's like almost a given that they had a philosophy background, uh, including myself. I started that way as well. Okay. So um, let's let's talk a little bit about your history. Um, you joined uh, U of Ottawa uh, in 2011, where you now serve as vice dean academic uh, and a full professor of law. Prior to that, I understand you were at UNB Faculty of Law from 94 to 2001. UNB was 2002 to 2011. Oh, okay. Okay. Leaf is 90, 94 to 2001. Ah, okay. I apologize. <laughs> That's fine. And also, of course, a very accomplished record at the Supreme Court of Canada, acting for interveners with Leaf, for example, um, in a number of uh, notable cases. You served as director of litigation at Leaf. And you're cited frequently by appellate courts throughout Canada and relied heavily upon, not just in courts, but also in media for your expertise in constitutional law, criminal law, comparative civil liberties. So let me ask you, why um, did you choose the path of academics over practice? Because clearly you have a very um, strong handle, not just in law, but also in the application of it through litigation. Yeah, so I was very fortunate to initially just receive a six-month contract at LEAF sometime after I was called. I was part of a cohort that uh, encountered a lot of difficulties in higher back in the mid-90s. Things were pretty bad. I articled with MAG, Ministry of the Attorney General, and most of us were not hired back. So I had a bit of a, was in a bit of limbo, and that was stressful. I was then really fortunate to get just a, a short-term contract with, with LEAF and parlay that into seven years. And that was an incredibly privileged position, mm -hmm. like to actually be able to do largely appellate constitutional litigation through intervention on issues that were path-breaking uh, for both the charter, for criminal law, for sexual assault, for equality rights. There's very few positions in the country that offer that. And it was amazing. It was an amazing experience. But it also eventually proved to be difficult in a way in terms of some of the underlying politics that surround feminist advocacy and the feminist movement. And so over time, those politics and the division and really very difficult uh, controversies over things like obscenity and so forth, I eventually burnt out is, is the honest answer. And I found that making a lateral move to another kind of practice was not that easy. I found some challenges there. And although I had never seriously thought about an academic career before that, because 
of my time at LEAF, I had developed many relationships with a number of uh, very noted academics across the country who would work in a volunteer capacity with LEAF. And I started to talk to them about what it would take to become a professor. And I decided to just take a risk, take a leap and go to the United States, go to Columbia Law School, get an LLM and see what happened. And I was really fortunate at the time that after I completed my LLM, I got a tenure track position at UMB and went into that, you know, a little bit uncertain, but it became quickly apparent that I was very well suited to uh, law teaching. And I really do feel that it's my calling. I want to ask you about that because it's a theme we explore a lot on our podcast. And just, um, I'm sure most of our listeners already know, but LEAF is the Women's Legal Education and Action Fund. You know, when you started into uh, working with LEAF, did you have an idea that all these amazing cases would come out of it and that you'd be at the forefront of litigating this? Or is this something that you just thought, well, this looks pretty neat and I'm going to get into it and put everything into it that I can? So I joined LEAF in 1994. LEAF was formed in 1985. So by then, it had already built itself a reputation of being the premier litigation outfit for women's equality in Canada. So LEAF already had a very well-established and I think well-deserved profile as being the leading voice for feminist litigation analysis in, in Canada. So I knew that, but I was still very young, fairly junior, and I don't think I quite appreciated the many competing interests and demands that would be on an organization like LEAF dealing with issues around diversity, around how to represent such an amorphous and large category as women. And that was, I think, an invaluable learning experience for me. And when I joined, um, so just to put it in some context, it was just a couple of years after the Supreme Court had issued its decision in Butler around obscenity, and that had engaged some controversy around whether through its uh, highly influential intervention featuring the thinkers like Catherine McKinnon, had Leaf actually supported a more moralistic view of the criminal law. So I came into it at that point, but then I was lucky enough to be there when Leaf was involved in hugely influential cases like RDS, mm-hmm. Vreen, dealing with sexual orientation equality, and a number of sexual assault issues around defending the second iteration of rape shield laws post-Seaboyer. Was that and- in Rock? Derek, or I call it Derek, but I think it's Derek. No, I think you're right. <laughs> now that I, I think I've that... never been able to figure out what that. <laughs> anyway. Also, another name that I've heard different um, pronunciations. I call it Yuanchuk, but some people call it Yuanchuk. Around the interpretation of consent and the O'Connor and Mills decisions around complainants' records. Right. All of that was happening in the late '90s. This was the Lemaire Court, mm-hmm. uh, hugely robust um, criminal law happening at the time, and, and lots of you know really. Um, really profound debates uh, involving feminist litigators and, say, criminal defense lawyers. Could you, you know, sense the change that was happening in real time? Like, could you sense the magnitude of what was going on with these decisions? Uh, I think we did. I think we we certainly had a sense, also because at the time, this was the beginning of the wide-ranging consultative process by the Department of Justice. It had been started post-Seaboyer under Minister of Justice Kim Campbell, but it continued under the Liberal government in reacting to the O'Connor decision around records and so forth. So there was a sense that this was a paradigm shift happening both at the parliamentary level and then the courts really recognizing that. Another thing I want to ask you, uh, 
is you mentioned how the transition wasn't necessarily easy from this lateral shift. And that's something I think a lot of lawyers struggle with, where they'll see something that they want to do. Perhaps it is wanting to get into academics or vice versa, or they'll want to, to get into a totally different area of practice. And they uh, stumble and they say, I, you know, I just can't do it because I've devoted all this into litigation. Where was uh, sort of the horizon point where you realized it was all going to be okay? And how is it that you can move from one to the other? Do you have any tips for those lawyers listening? Well, I think certainly you want to cultivate your connections. So there's no question for me, this is this is sort of inside baseball stuff around <laughs> academia, but in terms of doing a master's program and then going on to seek an academic career, one of the funny little perverse facts is that in academia, having too much experience in litigation is actually not necessarily seen as an right. advantage. So I was seven years out. Normally, you'd expect three or four. You know, go, go clerk at the Supreme Court, work on... On, work at a you know Seven Sisters for a while, couple of years, and then go do a master's at Harvard, and then you'll become a law professor. So that's maybe three years. So already I was, uh, frankly, a little bit stale by that time. But I was fortunate to have a number of references from professors, both former professors and people I'd worked with at Leaf, who had those connections to the states, and and that's why I was, I think, one of the things that tipped the balance in my favor. So cultivating those connections is really important. I think having a clear sense of what the market is like and what you will be facing in terms of being competitive for an academic position. I was fortunate that at the time, a PhD in law was not really considered necessary. It's more and more edging towards that. That's a fundamental undertaking. That's a really big commitment. So you need to think about can I do that? Will I have family support? Can I manage the rest of my life when I'm writing a dissertation? And part of it, you have to be all right with risk. And that was a challenge for me because I don't like risk. I don't like uncertainty. And some people thrive on it. For me, it was actually quite stressful. When did I know it would be okay? Well, getting into Columbia was a huge hurdle. And then once I was able to sort of see that I had a path to interviews, I was fairly confident I would perform all right in the actual job interviews at the at the schools. So I started to feel better and better. But, you know, there was no guarantee. Right. You know, I've heard that before. Um, the, the two things you mentioned that a, you know, I was talking to uh, Don Stewart in the previous podcast, and he was almost lamenting the fact that now we're moving towards a system where PhD is almost mandatory to get into academics. And I think you're a great person to ask about this because you do have the litigation experience. You do have that practical experience. And surely you must feel that there is a unique perspective that you offer and an, an advantage in some sorts to bring to academics that others don't have. A, is that true? And B, what do you think is lacking from stacking very heavy on the academics and not having the practical? I think it depends. So I guess I'm wary of making broad prescriptive statements about that. I, I And to be honest, I've been now a law professor for 16 years. Unlike some of my colleagues, like Peter Sankoff, for example, I don't still go out and litigate, although I am still a member of the bar. So I also have to be realistic. What is my actual real-time experience compared to what it was like in the late 90s, early 2000s? So you know, I, I try to be a bit humble about that. That said, I do think that for most areas of law, it's really helpful to have a sense of what it's like to actually be out in practice dealing with the realities of professional responsibility and dealing with clients. I had unique sorts of clients, but I still, 
you know, you're operating under a set of constraints. And, you know, frankly, to just have that experience, have some war stories that you can you can mm-hmm. tell the students. I mean, it's it's good to have a little bit to, to have some grounding in that, given that the majority of your students will be pursuing actual law practice. That said, you know, I, I would be hesitant to say it. you can't be a great law professor. You can't give your students um, amazing insight and feedback without necessarily a having practiced for a long time, but I think it's very helpful. And while I think that a PhD is an amazing grounding for a career as an academic in a professional school, I think there should also be room to recognize actual professional accomplishment. And in fairness, a lot of that uh, room is filled by adjunct professors who are practicing and come and teach, at, particularly at law schools, from what I've seen anyway. Is that, is that accurate? Or So we at Ottawa U are really uh, grateful to the amazing cohort of adjuncts who teach for us, absolutely. And our students are very appreciative and I know really enjoy the perspective that they bring. I mean, to learn real estate from someone who's doing real estate every day, I for there are certain kinds of things where I just think it's very difficult to replicate that, to be honest. Right. So let's flip that around. What do you think um, practitioners like myself could learn from academics like you? <laughs> <laughs> well... <laughs> Because in fairness, you know, we look at everything in, in often in, in case to case, courtroom to courtroom, but it's it's hard to find the time to step back and look at things in a broader perspective and say, well, you know, what really are we doing here? What, you know, we were just before we came in, we were talking about um, the Supreme Court of Canada decision of lay that's being argued right now. And, uh, you know, me looking at that case as a practitioner, I just kind of look at it like, oh, these particular police did this and my client is going to go to jail. But you know, I came in and you raised some much broader concepts that I think are something we sometimes lose sight of. In one sense, I think that's entirely understandable given the immediacy of what any lawyer is dealing with. I mean, your first duty is to your client and to zealously and assiduously represent their interests. And we wouldn't want to in any way weaken that. I do think that uh, more and more lawyers are weighing in on broader issues, testifying before parliament, making submissions, doing broad-based constitutional litigation. And there I think it, it can be helpful just uh, to have the academic luxury of taking the broader perspective. But that does require that you, for example, may, may need to consider a perspective that is not necessarily as advantageous mm-hmm. to, to the client, but may serve a, a larger a larger social goal. Mm -hmm. I wonder if there's any room for that where there, you know, do you see any avenues to open up dialogue between academics and and practitioners? Because from what I see, it's becoming more and more disjointed in contemporary discussions. And maybe that's just my perception, but. So, yeah, that's interesting because um, I, I personally haven't experienced that in that I have many you know, deep relationships with members of the criminal defense bar. And I find that I'm often asked to speak at professional events involving practicing lawyers and that they really appreciate the academic perspective. So I don't necessarily see it becoming more disjointed. I also would point out that I know a number of academics who maintain a practice. So my colleague Vanessa McDonnell, for example, is actually uh, of counsel in, in, in a firm with her husband, Leo Russimano. And, and they this summer, they, they launched a, a really ambitious uh, challenge of the uh, jury process, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which, you know, and I, I think that's amazing. I personally don't know how she does it. But so I, I see more um, opportunities for uh, for that kind of cross-pollination. 
So on that topic, because you've already essentially created your dream faculty here as vice dean, I'll flip the <laughs> flip, flip it a I little bit. I don't have that much power, no? but I like to think I do. <laughs> so if you went into practice, let's say you had oh. to go back and, and you're funded half a million dollars to right. say, you know what, start it all up, you make it the way you want it to be, what would it look like? Well, it would probably be on the smaller end and it would be the kind of practice where you can pick and choose a bit more of the cases. Um, I think of maybe Ebert Symes uh, litigation, constitutional litigation boutique that um, Mary Eberts and Beth Symes started uh, that has now, you know, employed people like David Corbett, now, of course, uh, a judge and so forth, where the niche was very well known and people would come to you with just amazingly innovative cases. I would also try and have it be the type of practice where you could have a non-trivial amount uh, devoted to representing underrepresented groups and people who really experience problems with access to justice. I would look for it to provide unparalleled training for junior lawyers. And, you know, I would, I would, ideally, it would be the, the kind of practice where you could actually be shaping the law, which, you know, for, for many lawyers, you get those cases, but they're, but they're few and far between. Right. You kind of shape it incidentally. You know, I remember a story where I, I tell the story all the time, but a colleague and my, a friend of mine, and we were both articling at the time, and uh, we ran into a very famous person who was attached, you know, from a lawyer, law nerd type perspective. It's like, oh my God, you are X. Right. Right. Uh, it wasn't Stinchcomb, but someone like that, right? right? And they couldn't care less. <laughs> they really couldn't. They were yeah. just sort of like, can you get me out of court today early because I got to go, yeah, right? Yeah. And, yeah, so, um, <laughs> you think of like, who was Oaks, right? <laughs> right, exactly. And Oaks is just some dude who's, you know, caught in traffic right now. <laughs> it's right. Um, in Ottawa, definitely caught in traffic. <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. Just got here. Um, so, so let me ask you then, back to the to the broad, back to the oaks of the world. What exactly is constitutional law, and why did you get into it? Why do you have so much passion towards this very broad concept? I guess you could say, and then we can dig down from there. So maybe I'll, I'll uh, flip the order and say my initial interest in constitutional law was started in law school when I you know, it was relatively early days of the charter. I mean, I was in law school. I started law school the year that Andrews and Law Society of British Columbia came out, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the seminal Section 15 equality rights case. And my initial interest was sparked by equality rights theory. And so I was very interested in Section 15, wrote papers about it, and then was, as I said, incredibly fortunate to have a position in one of the few legal outfits where the focus was Section 15, among other things. So my focus was always the the individual charter rights. But then I also developed an interest in criminal law and the um, application of the legal rights of the accused in those cases. And then when I got that brass ring, uh, the tenure track position at UMB, they said, we'd like you to teach constitutional and criminal, which was my dream assignment. And, and again, very, very fortunate. I didn't have to teach something totally unrelated to my interests because they needed it taught. And then I, I taught all of constitutional law. You know, I taught division of powers and judicature and aboriginal rights and, and then the charter. And I discovered how much I really liked all of constitutional law, and that I, in in some senses, in, in more recent years, 
although I still do a quality rights analysis and charter analysis, my focus has shifted from the charter to other aspects of constitutional law. To me, constitutional law is about power relations in society. It's about the fundamental norms that a society agrees to as underlying their core political commitments. And it is about the way that we hold each other accountable for doing politics in particular ways. And politics infuses all of constitutional law. It's inescapable. It's inescapable in federal-provincial relations. It's inescapable regarding Indigenous peoples. It is inescapable regarding judicial review. And that reality has to be balanced against the need to accept deeper principles. And that's where our system, I think, achieves this almost miraculous balance between something that is so inescapably political, namely making decisions, um, seeking power through electoral politics, for example, but is occurring within this acceptance by everyone, in particular people in, in positions of power, that we have underlying norms that we obey. And that is, to me, what constitutional law is about. You, Even if you have the power to do something, you will be constrained by an internal sense of a normative value that, in essence, acts as a constraining element on things you might want to do. And my concern in recent years, and this, we see this all over the world, is what happens with the, when those internal norms are no longer being observed regularly or it's anticipated that you won't suffer political consequences if you abandon those norms. That's a real concern that I have. I want to return to that because obviously that's very topical over the past few months. But before I do, a lot of uh, younger lawyers will come to other lawyers like us and say, you know, I want to be a constitutional lawyer. And we sort of look at that and say, well, what kind of do, do you mean by that? So I'll ask you the same question in a sense. What what exactly is a constitutional lawyer? Is there such a thing? And if not, how does one still maintain that principle or that objective, but still get into something more specific? So there's absolutely a constitutional, you can develop a constitutional practice most easily, of course, if you work for the state. Mm -hmm. uh, you can be in the constitutional law branch of a provincial or federal ministry and you will be doing constitutional law. That's obviously highly competitive, and it, put, and it forces you to routinely argue positions that may be contrary to what you thought you wanted to do in constitutional law. <laughs> right. You generally, if you want to be a constitutional lawyer, you will have a wider practice that will involve specialization in an area in which there's reliably constitutional litigation. So criminal lawyers who also have to do the bread and butter cases, but they develop unparalleled expertise in the accused legal rights. Um, some civil litigation lawyers will develop expertise in the fundamental freedoms, right? Or immigration lawyers will develop expertise on some aspects of Section 7 and perhaps mobility rights and so forth. So it usually will be ancillary unless you are at the, you're at a level where you become so well-known that you can actually become the person uh, of, of record or the, you know, the, the person of choice such that you can actually have a practice that is exclusively composed of high-profile cases. There's probably three or four people in the country who could do that. Right. And you're one of them. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say that, but... Uh. See, like, you know, as a criminal lawyer, we, we obviously deal with these issues a lot, but I forget that there's anything outside of 7 to 15, right? It's kind of like, oh, yeah, I forgot. Well, and maybe one, and always 24, 2, and 1. 
right? But uh, outside of that, you sort of like, oh, I forgot about that, right? Yeah, that was 15 years ago I learned about that. So let's get into the more specifics and these these norms that you say are, um, I think you're saying, are in peril in many ways. Um, because, you know, it's not every day that constitutional law becomes a dinner conversation <laughs> over Thanksgiving, but it did recently with uh, the Ontario Premier Doug Ford threatening to use Section 33 of the Charter. And then, of course, we see this rhetoric coming uh, from Quebec now as well. So... Uh, one of the things that I, I um, came across in preparing is uh, the editorial that you wrote. And what you said uh, in the decision that caused this initial controversy was, quote, perhaps the most extraordinary thing about Justice Edward Balababa's decision striking down the law that reduces the size of Toronto City Council, that it is not the most extraordinary thing to have happened Monday. The honor goes to Premier Doug Ford, who not long afterwards said he plans to use the Charter's notwithstanding clause for the first time in Ontario's history. In doing so, the Premier raised real concerns about his government's respect for the rule of law. He appeared to question the idea that everyone, elected officials and their governments included, is accountable to the law. So first of all, I know you've explained this like a hundred times on TV lately, but I'm going to ask you again. Can you explain exactly what is Section 33 and what are some of the general misunderstandings that surround the recent discussions that have been happening? Sure. So Section 33 is a section in the Charter of Rights, so it only applies to the Charter of Rights. That's one big misconception. It doesn't apply to the entire Constitution. It only applies to the Charter of Rights, and indeed it only applies to certain rights in the Charter. And what it says is that the legislature of either uh, at the federal or provincial level can pass a resolution saying that a law shall operate notwithstanding a number of rights in the Charter, namely Section 2, which is our fundamental freedoms, freedom of expression, religion, so on, and Sections 7 through 15, which are the legal rights, mostly that arise in criminal law, and the Charter's equality rights. If a legislature invokes Section 33, it has to do so with respect to a specific law. That law then operates as though those sections of the Charter don't exist. So it means that you can't challenge the law based on the argument that the law violates one of those Charter rights. And the courts will not review the law on that basis. It applies for five years at a time. It can be renewed an unlimited number of times, but it does need to be renewed every time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a couple of the misconceptions about Section 33 are that it applies to everything, that it applies for all time. Another misconception about Section 33 that we often hear is that you need to wait for a court to actually find that the law is in violation of the charter mm -hmm. before you can use it. That's actually not the case. Can I just, I just want to stop there because that's something that I think upset a lot of lawyers because while that I think is technically true, um, the fact that you would say preemptively, we know this is going to violate rights before we even had a court declare on it, and we're going to act upon it. And you see that now, of course, what's happening in Quebec, where yes. they can preemptively see something taking place. And that seems to me uh, not only unprecedented, but also, although technically possible, a little bit contradictory to the impact that the 33 was supposed to have in that a court has said these rights are being violated, and then a politician would come in and say, well, you know what, we're going to take the political flag from that and and invoke it anyway. So using it in that preemptive way actually is not unprecedented because when the charter first was enacted in 1982, 
not all of your listeners may know that that was done through a constitutional amendment, the Constitution Act 1982, right. which had the support of the federal government and nine of the 10 provinces. The province that did not agree was the province of Quebec, mm. which obviously has been, in a sense, a continuing sort of open sore in Canadian constitutional law. And so as a symbol of its distress or of, of its anger, really, that the Constitution had been amended in this way, Quebec actually invoked the notwithstanding clause for all of its legislation going forward, period. Essentially to say, we are exercising the full scope of our legislative authority to say how much we disagree and how much we resent the fact of the Constitution Act 1982. So that was actually a really big preemptive use of Section 33, but you can see that it was done in a particular political context. I think it is absolutely true that in the few examples of Section 33 that have happened since then, and there really only have been, you know, let's say a handful, the general course has been for the government to go through the ordinary course of defending the law in court against a constitutional challenge. And then at some point in that process, when it loses, to then invoke Section 33. The argument behind that is that you want to use it as a measure of last resort. I think for a government to either say just at the trial level, if they lose, we're going to invoke Section 33, or alternatively to say we're going to invoke it in the actual drafting of the law, you could see it as a way of just wanting to avoid the entire litigation process altogether. You could also see it as a way of the legislature asserting itself as the final word and saying, nope, we... Our majority will is what's important. This is so significant for our constituency, let's say in the case of a province, for our province, that we're going to invoke this and say, in effect, we don't care if it's found to violate the charter. We don't even care if it might ultimately be found to be vindicated under the charter. We want to take this out of the court's hands altogether. And that is you know, really evincing or demonstrating a certain attitude towards the role of the courts, which is different from what we've seen in the past. And if that were to become more widespread, I think the concern is that it would diminish the regard and respect we should have for the courts as being the body that ultimately, generally tells you, is a law valid or not. Right. And I can see that rationale as you describe it. It makes sense to me because you could see right from the outset, this is a, a firm political stance we're taking. But what seemed to happen with the Toronto case, it was like one goal was scored and Doug took the ball and said, I'm heading home. And that to me, what was really distasteful about all this is that you know, if you're going to play the game, at least wait until it finishes. And I think it was Justice Trotter who all, I didn't say it like this, but he kind of said this was much ado about nothing, you know, because of course, as soon as it got up to the Court of Appeal, it was quickly resolved. And I think it seemed like a lot of constitutional lawyers saw it going that anyway, uh, that way anyway. And uh, notwithstanding that, no, 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 no pun intended, but notwithstanding that, um, we had this really profound statement to say we're going to look at individual cases and also individual judges because there was some rhetoric going on there. Yes, there was. And, and that certainly uh, is a precedent that has concerned me. When you were like sort of seeing this unfolding, what were some of the other thoughts that were going through your mind? Well, I thought that it was extraordinary for any government, but particularly the government of Ontario, which traditionally has had, you know, in essence, like a, 
this may rankle some people who are not who are outside Ontario, but I think it's fair to say has had more of a leadership position in Confederation and has seen itself as very much on side with you know the the fundamental values of the charter has never used it before to see a premier of Ontario right off the bat, you know, two hours after you received the decision to have a press conference and to say, we are prepared to invoke the notwithstanding clause, but also to go further and really seem to challenge the legitimacy of the judiciary, to challenge the legitimacy of the idea that the courts review laws all the time for compliance with the constitution, because that's what having a constitution means. Um, that to me was actually shocking uh, that that you would be so open about that. And again, I talked about these norms, these underlying norms, and what I've been saying in a number of conversations is they are ultimately fragile in the sense that they depend upon their acceptance by the people who occupy positions of power in our system. And if you have someone like a premier of a province who's willing to question the norms of judicial review to make you know, really quite disturbing comments about the judge in particular, but also to say, I was elected, the judge is appointed. If that becomes commonplace, then you're really undermining the constitutional norms that undergird our society. What you're saying then is, well, really all that matters is, do you have a democratic majority that's elected you to do things? And anytime a democratic majority thinks this right doesn't matter, maybe trial within a reasonable time, that's been very contentious, maybe cruel and unusual punishment, you know, depending on how you see that, then, you know, that's good enough to make that kind of decision. And that's, that's really disturbing. Right. And because, you know, my concern with it all, and maybe others share this, is that political winds change very quickly. And, you know, I, I, I wonder, you know, as you hear a lot of people who take strong political positions to say, well, you know, this was the right decision, as opposed to, the, like you say, the norms under underline it. I wonder if they would be so enthusiastic if, you know, a very different government 10 years down the road said we are imposing something that they may consider very strong against their free speech rights, for example, and invoking the notwithstanding clause. Well, I guess it wouldn't apply, but, but similar um, types of rhetoric. So let me ask you, because there are very few people who can answer this, what does it mean then when you when you talk about the rule of law and due process and these underlying normative values, why should every Canadian care about it in a neutral sense rather than what they want? Well, the rule of law ensures that everyone in our society, including those who wield power, who actually can have immediate effect on your lives, can throw you in jail, can garnish your salary, can seize your house, are themselves subject to the law. They do not have untrammeled power. And there is a means to hold them accountable. That's ultimately what the rule of law is. And that they need to behave in accordance with previously articulated norms and rules. And in the Canadian context, where we have a constitution, there are underlying norms that they have to abide by, mostly dealing with the rights of individuals that have to be protected against the desires of majorities, which may be hostile to them. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, we can see, you hear this a lot, where there's this sort of rise of populism. And 
backing up a little bit, there's sort of this long-held rationale behind politicians not using the notwithstanding clause because, at least in the past, it would be considered um, political suicide. In a statement of former Chief Justice McMurtry, Jean Chrétien, and uh, Romanow, uh, in describing their intent, they indicated that, quote, the clause was designed to be invoked in legislatures in exceptional situations and only as a last resort after careful consideration. It was not designed to be used as, by governments as a convenience or as a means to circumvent proper process. And that was clear at the time. And I think what was sort of the sort of Damocles over politicians' heads was this thought that, well, if we invoke it, then we're going to take collateral damage on this. But, you know, I, I have to ask, do you think that that same sort of deterrence exists anymore in this age of populism? I think it depends. So I think one of the scary things about the notwithstanding clause is it's been suggested in political science work, for example, that one of the reasons that Canadians as a whole developed a very negative view of the notwithstanding clause is that they saw it being used in Quebec in what they perceived was an indiscriminate manner, and particularly against the Anglophone minority in Quebec. So they saw it, they could identify with the people against whom it was being used. You know, had it been used in a different kind of case, maybe a criminal law case by the federal parliament, who knows, right? This contingency of it is a little unsettling. I do think part of the issue will be the reaction by other leaders and leaders who have credibility on the issue in terms of how the general public will receive it. But yeah, within a, within a particular jurisdiction, like its use was not... I don't know how controversial its use was in Quebec at the time, but in a particular jurisdiction, it may not engender that much disapproval. It would be a sense, a more a more national sense of, are we losing something? Is something slipping away? And that, of course, requires a shared sense of our political community, which I think is somewhat at risk in the current environment, which is hugely unsettling. So does that, you know, when you're talking about leaders, I presume you're talking about political leaders, does, if, if they're failing in that regard and protecting the role of law, does that then fall to the judiciary or lawyers to try and be spokespeople? Because, you know, frankly, our voice isn't heard as loudly. The judiciary is in a highly vulnerable position if it tries to work actively against the notwithstanding clause because of the way the notwithstanding clause clearly does give the final word to the legislative branch. So that, I think, would put the judiciary in a, in a very precarious position. But perhaps if the issue was extreme enough, the judiciary would step in. I think other kinds of social leaders would be important. Mm -hmm. um, people who are, you know, frankly, and this may sound crazy, but people who have a lot of profile in the society. Um, we live in an age of celebrity, right? Sure. <laughs> There's That's no right. greater example than the one we all know. And well, so Rick, Rick Mercer, in fairness, is doing his, his part, right? With <laughs> right, his exactly. rants. But we need more of those, I guess. So, so other kinds of influential people would need to speak out. But of course, you know, people may think, well, it's not for me to make a political statement. But actually, these kinds of issues affect all of us. And it absolutely is our right and even duty to speak out. Okay, so moving to something what I hope is more optimistic then. <laughs> uh, it's been, by my calculation, well, actually the internet's calculation, 36 years, five months, and 25 days since the charter was enacted. Do you think that it mostly has brought what the framers had intended? 
So that's actually, those are fighting words to invoke the framers, <laughs> um, you know, because it, it raises all kinds of interesting theoretical debates. Who were the framers? What do they individually want? People have all kinds matter. of theories of what Trudeau, you know, Pier- Pierre Elliott Trudeau wanted versus the, the premiers. I would say that it, it probably um, morphed into something beyond what they could have possibly imagined. I do think that to the extent it was meant to be a kind of nation building exercise or a unifying exercise, I think the evidence is that that has worked, you know, um, love or hate the charter as you will, or love or hate the role of the courts. I think the charter has become something that Canadians identify with and something that they see as really important to the country as a whole. Mm-hmm. And I think it it has, in a sense, ushered us into the rights age that we live in, um, you know, where we actually think of our rights and, and think of the Constitution as something that we have ownership over, that we have a say into, and that we have the ability to challenge. We, we have direct ability to challenge laws that um, are are not in compliance with the Constitution. And, of course, we have many groundbreaking cases since 1982, dealing in criminal law, dealing in voting rights, dealing with equality rights, fundamental freedoms that we wouldn't have had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is a certain – there is a nation-building because – you know, even looking to some of my clients who will say, you know, what about my rights here? And very often they're not even describing rights that exist, but That's just right. the notion that that there is a belief that we are all protected in some way or another, I think, brings us together in many ways. But looking back, do you think that they, in the sense that the framers or you would have changed things? Like, let's say it was up to you, okay? <laughs> uh, and in retrospect, looking back and you thought, you know, let's let's change something. For example, would it be a removal of the, of the notwithstanding if it was possible? Um, strengthening certain search and seizure rights? What is a, something that's caused you some concern over the years? Putting aside the political question of whether the notwithstanding clause was necessary in order for the charter to be achieved, to get the sufficient level of provincial consent, I don't think that whether you have a notwithstanding clause or not, I don't think that the notwithstanding clause necessarily adds anything to the Constitution. It does provide that ultimate out for the legislature. I don't necessarily see it as being such a great benefit that the charter could not exist without it. So, um, and certainly while there have been recent constitutions which adopt that, there are many constitutions that don't have that, that actually say, look, the constitution is what it is and we all have to um, either accept it or work to change it through formal amendment. So one thing I would do, I think, is probably have a look at the actual amending formula, which is extremely onerous to to see whether there could be other routes to to amendment that are are not quite so challenging. I, I believe the Canadian Constitution is one of the most difficult to amend in the world. And that I think inhibits, you know, a whole form of debate that is not necessarily healthy for the country. The idea, well, we can't change it. Right. Mm-hmm. That's that's not a that's not a great attitude to have. I would, and this is just sort of a personal thing, I would have separated out freedom of conscience from freedom of religion because I feel like freedom of conscience has been given completely short shrift mm, and it almost it's subsumed within freedom of religion, which is a very different thing. Right. It's almost conflated into one with religion being prioritized. It exactly. Seems. Yeah. That's right. In terms of the legal rights, um, I mean, you probably have more of an, uh, a... a um, well, my clients have a lot to say about how they should have, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, 
driving around with cocaine in their car and stuff. They don't like to be searched. I guess so maybe be a bit more clear as to <laughs> whether, you know, Section 7 really is just one big right or actually has, you know, the, the freestanding rights plus the um, principles of fundamental justice qualifier. You know, the other thing, though, to, to recognize is that you could have a clearer enunciation of the rights. You could reform, rejig Section 1 if you wanted, maybe a different approach to Section 15. Ultimately, it's it's another thing that's contingent. It depends on which court cases reach the court first, mm-hmm. right? What are the issues there? How does the particular court react? We had the fact that we had, in essence, the Dixon court with those persons uh, interpreting those rights at that moment in time, that was formative. That That is what happened. The fact that, you know, we had a delay for Section 15, maybe that's one thing I you, you might I might have taken out. I, I'm not sure that it actually achieved its purpose. Um, have Section 15 be there from the beginning, and then you might have had a different uh, approach to equality rights. Not that the approach was not um, itself positive, but, uh, you know, it's interesting to think about what would have happened if, you know, a case like Big M, which was the first freedom of religion case, also could have proceeded on an equality rights basis. Sure. Things like that. Yeah, it's um you know, I it, it you look at the document and it could even you can even, you know, get those those single page printouts from the government with the flag on it and then you think, "Oh, there's all my rights." And then you look at the textbooks that that interpret it and you know, there's a whole wall. Exactly. So, let's let's change the pace a little bit. I want to ask you some questions about academics because you do serve as vice dean here at the Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa. And I'm going to suggest to you that the demands and uh, sorry, I'm getting into cross examination mode here. <laughs> suggest you, is it, is it fair to say that the demands and skill set for lawyers in 2018 is different than what it meant 20 or even 10 years ago? And for law schools like yourself, I have to constantly be thinking forward 10, 20 years, even 30 years, how that education equips them. So if this if this is accurate. Um, what strategies towards evolution and long-term preparedness do you think um, you have learned as vice dean, and um, what have you tried to implement for your students? Yeah, I think I for sure the legal profession is changing um, in some ways that I think are presenting a lot of challenges to our students, but in other ways that can be exciting. So having students look at the practice of law as something much wider than what it's been traditionally seen as uh, in terms of, I mean, we still certainly, when I went to law school, even though we weren't qualified as barristers or solicitors, but both, you still have this idea, well, this is really, you know, you're either going to be a litigator or you're not. Mm-hmm. And I I think that encouraging students to see how they can practice law in a variety of ways is really important. Um, I think ensuring that students have skills that are ancillary to law but really important like reading financial statements and knowing how to run a business mm-hmm. are for many of them that's core that's right. core to what they're going to be doing and that's something that maybe law schools can can do a better job at i also think i'm preparing them to deal with and practice in um, a society that is increasingly diverse and giving them the competencies to represent the legal profession in the best possible way. That's, you know, something we certainly take very much to heart at U of O and try to instill in our students, you know, the, the awareness of 
the responsibilities that they bear, but also the, the incredibly um, rich array of people they're going to be dealing with in, mm-hmm. in, in a country like Canada. So keep in mind, this podcast is only an hour long, but I want to ask you, is there something that you feel at your faculty in particular that you feel are doing very well? And um, you really think that, you know, whether it's through particular professors um, that you're very proud of as vice dean here? Well, I think that we have some specialist groups that are top in the country. I think we have one of the best law and tech groups in the country with professors like Michael Geist and Ian Kerr. We have a top-notch health law group under Professor Colleen Flood. And this is patting myself on the back because I'm a member of this group. (laughs) I do think we have, I would say, at least second to none, an amazing public law group administrative law, constitutional law, and criminal law Well, here you can at see the parliament buildings from out your you window You can see the parliament, much, so. but you know, we have, I mean, Adam Dodek, right. uh, Errol Mendez, Craig Forsees, mm-hmm. and Peter Oliver, you know, Vanessa McDonnell, who I mentioned, Kyle Kirkup. These are just uh, phenomenal thinkers at all stages of their careers who have really had an impact on fundamental public law. So we, you know, can really offer... We, I think we offer students sort of a, a window into these amazing specializations, and I'm leaving off many, which I'm, of I'm course. conscious well, that's of time. I, I, said, I yeah. think we also provide students with um, an incredible array of internships capitalizing on our location in Ottawa. So with a variety of organizations and parliamentary and government groups and departments that uh, would be difficult to replicate anywhere else. For sure. Well, I saw the orientation where it seems like a lot of the students got to tour the Supreme Court. We had our orientation reception on the grounds of the Supreme Court. I do think it's fair to say that the University of Ottawa Law students have more personal contact with Supreme Court of Canada justices and federal court justices than any other students in the country. And we really take that, um, we really value that and, and cherish that relationship. And, you know, so this week, my students, my, I teach a small group of 20 criminal law students, first-year criminal law students. Yesterday, they were at the Supreme Court. They were lucky, not, lucky enough to get in the chamber to hear Barton, which is oh, an incredibly wow. complex and controversial sexual assault case. Mm-hmm. And today, a number of them were there for the lay case on Section 8. And, you know, they, yes, you can watch it on livecast, but I always tell them it's not the same as being in the chamber. Right. Well, from... A law geek's perspective, that's pretty cool. (laughs) Um, So let me ask you something. You obviously have a lot of passion towards your students and what you're teaching them. Um, I I can sense that. But do you um, feel that they have taught you some valuable lessons over the years? Oh, absolutely. Yep. They, first of all, they're they're just really smart and accomplished. Um, They're definitely... They definitely have more ex- life experience and accomplishment than I did when I was 22, year old, 22 <laughs> years old and, and entering Osgood. And some of them are the same age I was, but some of them, a number of them are, are older. They just have an amazing array of, of backgrounds and um, different things that they've done. Uh, I find they're invariably, they're really thoughtful. They're much more... You know, we live in a in a much more interconnected world, and in a sense, that increases our level of stress and and you know just our awareness of the horrors that are going around going on around us. And I find that they, because of that, they've developed in a sense greater social awareness, right? Um, more empathy, more political uh, knowledge and opinions than than I did when I was twenty two. I was really in a bubble at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, you just sort of I was just a student. But I think they they conceive of themselves much more as social citizens, right? 
Yeah, and and two, I mean, there's obviously a lot of challenges they face with tuition, rising tuition costs. Um, what are some of the challenges that the law schools themselves face in moving forward into the future? Well, I think that the um, public funding for universities is a challenge everywhere in the country, and we've seen that, and that creates pressure to generate revenue, uh, which can subtly change the attitude in a law school, right? Right. It becomes from a place where you do scholarly inquiry and you do professional formation, you introduce this more transactional element and how can we, you know, sure. add value, but in a in a very commercial way. And that's that's the the way it is. But it's it's a little sad to, mm-hmm. to when you have to to think that much in dollars and cents. Let me ask you if you you know you, you probably speak to a lot of uh, law students who come in. And is there a, either a common or a, a repeating misconception that perhaps new law students have that you try and say to them, you know, recalibrate? Maybe it's because lawyers have told them to approach uh, law school a certain way or just because they don't really know what lawyers do. Like for myself, for example, I'd never met a lawyer before I came to law school. And so right. I had no idea what was happening until I got here. And so I, I relied heavily on my professors to sort of tell me, what am I doing here? So I think that the first year, of course, is a trial by fire for almost every law student <laughs> well, <good> from <laughs> time immemorial, <laughs> and it remains that today. I think they, because most of them have experienced great success in their life, and that's why they're in law school, they are challenged, very much challenged in the first few months, and they may doubt themselves. And so one of the things I, I continually try to impress on them is it's okay if you don't get everything right now. If it doesn't all make sense right now, it will. It will make sense. Allow yourself to go through this learning process. Allow yourself to absorb everything and know that there are opportunities for you to sit back and and actually digest. The other thing, and because I teach criminal law and this is more challenging, that I tell them is, you know, one of the things you need to learn as a lawyer is to develop that professional sense of detachment. It's not that empathy and compassion and really um, identifying on a pure human level with clients is not an incredibly important skill, but when you're acting as their lawyer, whether it's in a criminal context or another context, you have to put on a different hat. And you need to, one of the ways you deal you deal with that in criminal law is you're going to read a lot of cases about people doing really crappy things to each other, and you need to be able to look at that through a different lens. Right. Not just the, what an awful human being, but, okay, what is the fundamental expectation of the criminal justice system in terms of the process you have to go through to be able to actually visit appropriate consequences on this person? Right. I think that's... Excellent, excellent advice. Because you know what I see in practice, you know, seeing practitioners all the time, the burnout often doesn't come from workload. We're used to that. It, the burnout is more the emotional attachment, and no human is capable of that sort of baggage, emotional, emotionally feeling that for every client that comes through the door. You know, I, you know, every person that comes through in these criminal contexts has their whole life has been shattered, and if you're going to carry the weight of sixty people at a time. Uh, yeah, I think that's excellent advice. So let me ask you about social media, um, because uh, you're one of our guests who is very active on social media, which is great. Um, obviously, you know, I, I love it too. Um, uh, it comes with a lot of problems. But what do you get from social media? And what would you say to those lawyers who are doubtful to get into it? I mean, on a balance, is it better than not? It depends on how you see your career evolving. I would say 
it's more and more an expectation. Certainly if you're in any kind of, if you have any kind of profile, Mm -hmm. you want to at least have a, a modest footprint on social media. But if social media makes you really uncomfortable, I think it's better to stay away from it mm. than to get involved and perhaps create more stress for yourself. What I do say to people is that it is possible to confine your social media usage to particular topics. I actually really recommend that. So not to use it as a general way for you to comment on just stuff that you find interesting. Use Facebook for that and mm-hmm. set your set your privacy settings. Mm-hmm. Um Create your niche. So I am on social media. I don't consider myself a huge user, uh, certainly not as, as much as some people. It's increased over the last, uh, I guess now, nine years or nine or ten years. But, um, you know, I comment on certain things. Now, there are people with whom I've developed friendships on social media, and I will have more casual discussions with them. But generally, I try to confine it to commenting on on certain things and using it as a way to hopefully educate a bit, um, correct misconceptions, I publicize my own work. Mm-hmm. I publicize my law school. And I engage. And I, my fun political stuff, I, I generally don't tend to comment in a really overt political way that much on things happening in Canada. But I allow myself snarky comments directed right. south of the border. The indulgences there, yeah, <laughs> it's hard to resist. But I have to say, you know, this obviously isn't um, confined to social media, but the immediacy of criticism is there when you're on social media. And it's not the type of criticism where, you know, if you write a paper, um, you may have three or four academics who strongly disagree with you, but they will say it in a very civil way and you can see where they're coming from, but you still don't agree. But, you know, Twitter is different, of course, and you get people who uh, feel they have a valid opinion too, even though they've never even read the case you're talking about. Yeah. So let me ask you this. I mean, you're obviously... Uh, like you say, you engage. And um, uh, do you think that, do you have any concerns that when you're doing these sorts of things that, you know, being cautious and doing that, because a lot of lawyers are very cautious and feeling that if I get criticized, my whole sort of career will fall. Why do you do it? Why do you do it when you know that there's going to be this engagement? So I will say that I think before I tweet in terms of, do I want to get involved in something that's super hot at the moment? And will frankly attract a lot of trolls or maybe has, you know, there are actually deliberate attempts to pile, dogpile on people on Twitter. So, and and there are some cases, frankly, many cases where I hang back in the moment because I think it's not actually worth it for me to try and intervene now. Maybe I can do it through a blog post. Maybe, oh, I have this immediate interview coming up and that's where I get to have my say. So I definitely calibrate my involvement depending on the heat that I feel like taking because I'm not interested in engaging in that mano a mano really down in the gutter conflict. That's not what I'm on Twitter to do. And I don't feel the need to respond to everyone who responds to me. I make liberal use of mute if someone's being really snarky. I haven't had to block that many people, but I've been fortunate to avoid that kind of real dog pile. Um, And Yes, I think that is a reality that you have to be aware of. And that's the other reason. So although I engage, and sometimes I'll make a sharp comment or two, I try not to make really negative or snarky comments that I know will get an immediate pushback. I try to have it be a bit more directed at maybe a legal position or a general observation that is not likely to inspire 
the kind of trolling that you get. So, I, I, and I think there are, there are ways that you can do that, but it is a risk. And that is why, again, I think if you're uncomfortable with it, that's totally understandable. Right. Well, I mean, one thing I, I can certainly take from that is you obviously put a lot of thought into how you're going to engage and when and where. And I think that's a really important lesson to, to take. I, I think it was Peter Aprile's podcast who he had interviewed David Frum, who I said it quite well, and it's been resonating with me, and that is I don't engage in arguments, you know, in the sense that I don't engage the argument, I engage the topic. Right. And um, it's it's sort of changed my thought on how I want to engage a lot of Twitter as of late. Um, so let me ask you, you, you obviously have achieved so much in life, and I'm sure a lot of young uh, lawyers look up to you and aspire towards what you have. So how is it that you can achieve such a high level of excellence and just maintain that? And what sort of tips do you pass on is to maintain that sort of endurance of, of excellence, if I could put it that way? <laughs> <laughs> That's very kind. Um, I'm fortunate in that I love what I do. So when I burnt out of my of my litigator position, I had this, you know, I had a period of time where I would wake up and I would dread going to work. Mm-hmm. That to me, when you have that feeling, it's time to really seriously reassess. So one of the things that keeps me going is I get up in the morning and I'm usually, you know, at least looking forward with uh, at least I'm neutral about what the day holds. I am vice dean, so I have admin duties, which are not always everyone's cup of tea. <laughs> but I'm usually, you know, I still wake up and feel, well, I'm really lucky to do what I do. Um, although, of course, I have challenges. So that keeps me um, motivated. I have been fortunate in just having some goals. So I've recently completed two manuscripts. So for the first time, I'll be publishing a couple of books, which is exciting. So let's hear about exciting. them. Let's hear the, we, we can book plug all you want. <laughs> so I have one book um, that is should be coming out very soon. I'm actually finalizing changes to the manuscript. It's called um, Courts Without Cases, okay. The Law and Politics of Advisory Opinions. And it is about the practice in Canada of courts issuing reference opinions. So the Quebec secession reference, there's now a couple of references going forward around um, environmental regulation by Saskatchewan and Ontario around the carbon tax. This is where the governments can approach courts for questions in issues where there isn't a live case. You don't actually have what we call inter partes litigation. This is something that's been in Canada since 1875. It was adopted from England, but it's morphed far beyond its use in most common law jurisdictions. And it's been a really distinctive part of our law, but it hasn't really been explored, certainly in legal scholarship, as its own thing. Mm. And so I'm using it as a vehicle to discuss it both for its incredible um, influence in Canadian constitutional law, but also what it says about how we think about law. Because the point about a reference is, it's technically not binding. It doesn't Mm -hmm. have the force of law, but in practice it does. Right. Right? We don't make distinctions between whether something's been issued the prostitution reference versus Bedford. Mm-hmm. We don't make that. The Supreme Court doesn't make that distinction. Why is that? So that's a book I wrote, started writing in 2016, and um, it's being published by Hart in the UK, and it'll be coming out soon. The other book is a co-authored book with Michael Plaxton of the University of Saskatchewan, and it's about the Supreme Court Act reference. A couple of years ago, now, my goodness, four years ago, when the Supreme Court actually ruled that um, a federal court of appeal judge was ineligible to represent Quebec, Marc Nadon. So we have written uh, a book for UBC Press that um, looks at this really interesting episode. It raises issues around the executive judicial relationship. It raises issues about the role of the court in deciding that Nadon was ineligible. The court also said that its role in our constitution is now protected 
it essentially entrenched itself. And that has implications as to changes we can make to the court. For example, there have been people saying we should have bilingualism as a requirement of a Supreme Court justice. We should change the court to um, have a guaranteed seat for an indigenous person. Can we do that? Right. So um, that's. Have, that's you sold, a, have you sold the movie rights yet? <laughs> Seriously, the, though, I think that would be a really at least a good Netflix, you know, <laughs> documentary. I think that'd be really cool. Well, well, uh, I, we'll see. <laughs> we'll um, see yeah. <laughs> so that that book that book's coming out. So so those are some things that I'm really excited about. And I've been I've been working on. I really appreciate the autonomy that I have as a law professor. Mm -hmm. There are not many positions in society where you have the kind of freedom to do what you want to do with some, obviously some commitments. You have to teach your classes. I have to do my vice dean work. But other than that, I can sort of set my goals. And that's a huge luxury that I'm really aware of every day. So it sounds like, you know, I ask all our guests, what does a great day look like to you? But it seems like almost every day is a great day for you. So what is it outside of uh, <laughs> academia that you just love doing? How do you spend the time where you just feel totally um, revitalized afterwards? Sure. Uh, so a great day for me. So I recently, in January, for the first time ever, I got a dog. Yeah. Uh, so I'm a first time dog owner and I'm absolutely loving it. So a great day for me would start with a very early morning walk for my dog. The dog's name is Bolo. He's a rescue from Mexico. We call him our NAFTA dog. <laughs> we managed to get him in. <laughs> So uh, walking the dog and then a uh, good day would probably be, you know, making myself a leisurely breakfast of, you know, pancakes or French toast, mm -hmm. uh, listening to some podcasts because I've really gotten into legal podcasts. Oh, good. Yeah. So yeah. there's some great ones in They're political addictive. podcasts too. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I listen to, um, you know, The Docket with um, Michael Spratt, Emily Tammon. There's some American ones that I listen to. Yeah. Uh, then I'd probably... I'd like to take, I'd probably take something like a ballet class because I danced for many years. Uh, you and Danielle Robitaille. Ah. Yeah, she's uh, she was a big dancer. Yeah. And I think she still dances. Yeah. So, yeah. so I do that. I will admit that I, I like occasionally a bit of shopping. So yeah. I do a bit of shopping. <laughs> and then uh, go out for a drink with my husband and probably go to see a movie. We I love superhero movies, so I'm really looking forward to Aquaman and well, I guess <laughs> Avengers Venom. Four. Yeah, Avengers Four. <laughs> and then come home, um, play with the dog, and uh, watch some YouTube videos, and go to bed. Well, that does sound like a really great day. So let me let me wrap up by asking you this, Charisma. I I ask everyone this, and that is, you know, if you had the power of Chief Justice or Attorney General, and you could have a very profound impact on one area of the law, whether by reversing or tweaking a Supreme Court of Canada decision, or even just changing something, or maybe even invoking the notwithstanding clause, <laughs> <laughs> what do you think would be your top priority? Well, there would be because I have to pick one. I do think that the criminal code itself is in need of general reform. That would be a large undertaking, but it's badly needed. We've seen examples of where, you know, we have zombie laws that then get applied in murder cases. Mm -hmm. um, there, the code was last updated systematically in 1985. That's 33 years. That is a long time for such a fundamental statute. And there are many inconsistencies that just make it more difficult than it has to be. So general reform of the criminal code. I have to give a nod to my friend Peter Sankoff. I would reinstitute the Law Commission of Canada, and I would definitely look at repealing most mandatory minimums. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us on our podcast. Chrisma Mathen, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks.